Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Everyone around here I know uh, is familiar with the story that occurred a week ago, roughly, in which the OPP officer just outside Hagersville was gunned down and killed. Uh, I won't say murdered yet because that's a legal term. We don't know if he was murdered yet, although he was killed. We'll get into that in a bit. But um, in the wake of this, there have been calls for the stiffening of bail rules in this country because the accused, one of the accused anyway, was out on bail um, for a number of things, for breaching his past conditions. He has firearms offenses in the past and assaulting a peace officer in the past and was on bail. He'd been He'd been let out anyway. Uh, there are those now who say this this was maybe the cause. If we had simply kept such a person behind bars longer or made bail more difficult to get, maybe this officer is alive. Now, it's a very difficult thing to say one plus one equals two. We will never know. But in general, would we be safer? Would we be better if it was more difficult for people charged with serious offenses to get back out on the streets? Or should they be waiting in jail for their case to come up? Jamie Stevenson is a criminal defense lawyer here in the city. We love having her on. Jamie, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm fantastic. Happy New Year, and thank you for doing this. Thank you. Happy New Year. So I, I would be betting all the money I have as a criminal lawyer that you would be on the side to say, no, bail is, you know, we shouldn't be making it stiffer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down this path anyway, and because there are those who say these kind of things only point to the problem of letting potentially dangerous people out on the street. Why Why should bail not be tougher to get? Why should we not be more careful with the people who we're letting out? Well, I think first we have to make sure that people understand that it's not that easy to get bail. We actually, in my opinion, have a much better system than they do in the United States where there's a very quick appearance before a judge and essentially if your bail can be met uh, in terms of a quantum, then you will be released. I mean, there's more to it, but I'm just saying we have an extensive process especially with serious matters in most jurisdictions that i'm aware of that i've practiced they have a specific crown assigned to bail vetting any offense that involves a firearm has to go through a specific crown that is experienced in firearm uh, related offenses and they also almost never consent as it relates to a firearm offense unless there's a serious issue with the case Then it has to go before a justice of the peace. And in a firearm-related offense, for the most part, not all firearm-related offenses, but many firearm-related offenses, particularly if there's a previous firearm-related offense, the accused person bears the onus of showing why they should be released. And they have to go through the primary, secondary, and tertiary grounds as to why they should be released and uh, how their plan satisfies those grounds. So it's not as easy as a lot of people think, but you also have to keep in mind the presumption of innocence at the bail stage, which is, yes, this individual may have been facing criminal charges, but those charges that that individual was facing at the time have not been proven in court. That's a, that, that is a fantastic point, and I, I absolutely acknowledge that because that's true. Our system says that until you're proven guilty, you're not. So it does become this awkward situation to say, let's keep them locked up in perpetuity until we can have a trial because they might not be guilty. So that uh, th- that's a very, very good point. Let me go back to something, though, that you said just a moment ago, that it's not easy to get out. 
If it's not easy to get out, does that mean that most people who are charged with something don't get bail or do most ultimately get it, even though it's more difficult than, say, in the States? I can't give you a statistic. I didn't really look into it. I mean, obviously, I have a lot of clients who have been released uh, on bail with even serious charges, but I also have clients who have been detained when they have serious charges. So there, but the point I think we have to understand is that there is a process and ultimately a justice of the peace weighs uh, a justice of the peace in most cases, uh, although there are some cases that can only be heard by a judge, such as uh, a homicide. But uh, the justice of the peace weighs whether or not the plan that's been presented, as well as the considerations on the primary, secondary and tertiary grounds, um, which consider the potential for that individual to create a, a, a substantial risk to the community, whether or not they have met uh, their onus, particularly in serious offenses, uh, or when they have outstanding charges already. I think one of the reasons that this has again come forward, not just because of the tragedy of the of the police officer, but it was, it, it was just recently, reasonably recently, that our federal government changed bail rules. Isn't it though that there was a what was a Bill C seventy five, if I recall, that w- was changing to to make it a little bit easier, or maybe easier for certain groups. I'm not sure if it was everybody or just certain groups, but the, the bail rules have been changed recently. Yes, that's true. But the thing is, the thing we have to remember as well is that even though there are changes in the in the rules and the legislation. We can't have a knee-jerk reaction to a to an absolute tragedy, which is what has happened here. This the the uh, death of this OPP officer. I'll be very clear: is an absolute tragedy. Of course, we can't have a knee-jerk reaction to say, "Well, because of this tragedy, as a result, we need to now completely overhaul the bail system." Unfortunately, I don't think we can blame the bail system for what happened. So there's a lot more to it. And when legislation changes, whether it changes to become, if I can, tougher or perhaps less tough as it as it has recently, it needs to go through a process, a legislative process and a thought process that is where uh, the powers that be are making proper and and fulsome considerations as opposed to reacting to the public outrage at uh, one one or more specific tragedies. There, in in light of the the change to the bail rules, uh, the the attorney general in British Columbia, and obviously not here, but in British Columbia, is saying there are unintended consequences because more repeat offenders are getting out, and they are then going and offending again. And I, it, it's a very interesting thing too, because you know, let's say for example that John Smith gets charged with something; it's his first offense, serious or not. Yeah, I don't know that we can automatically say that that person is going to repeat as an offender. If someone's been through the system three, four, five, six times, we have a better idea of what might happen. Are there still differences between repeat offenders and first-time offenders, do you see, as far as getting bail? is Are you more likely if you're a first-timer, or does everybody sort of qualify the same? Oh, everyone does not qualify the same. That's where really what we talk about or when I say these second primary, secondary, tertiary grounds in particular, that's where the secondary and tertiary grounds come into play, where the court uh, takes a significant, takes significant notice as to whether or not this is a person who is continuously coming before the court or whether this is someone who is there for a first offense. Someone there on a first offense is most certainly going to have a better chance of getting released than someone who is continuously coming before the court. 
even if that person is continuously coming before the court for nonviolent offenses, if someone is showing a complete, a continued and complete disregard for court orders and the administration of justice, they're not going to get relief because they have shown that they are not able to comply with conditions. So there's a significant, there's significant weight put on an individual's criminal record when they come before the court before for a bail hearing. Just before I let you go, you've done lots and lots and lots of these. Have you ever had, uh, how often, does it happen often that you either have someone who you're sure is going to get bail, who doesn't, or you're sitting there and you can't af- admit this to them, but you're thinking there's no chance you're getting bail and they end up getting it. Does either of those happen often? The courts always surprise me. <laughs> so, <laughs> even to this day, they always surprise me. It's, it's, it's hard to predict because, of course, you're dealing with uh, an individual justice of the peace who uh, has their own uh, history and has their own understanding of the application of the law. And it's not to say they're making bad or good decisions. It's really just a matter of whether or not um, they are uh, applying the law in the same way. And sometimes that can be the difficulty uh, when we have, uh, obviously, individuals involved in making these decisions. Mm. Uh, that is Jamie Stevenson. I, I hope no one listening is facing any criminal charges, but you could do a lot worse than Jamie if, if you need a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> Jamie, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Did you watch the NHL outdoor game this week? It was in Boston, the Fenway Park. If I have to tell you that, the answer is probably no. Uh, I mean, I look, I watched the very first one back in Edmonton when it was absolutely blisteringly cold between the Oilers and the Montreal Canadiens. And I remember vividly watching the one in Buffalo with the Penguins and the Sabres which was the second one. And it was, remember, the beautiful snow just falling perfectly. And I went to the Hamilton Bulldogs one. It wasn't NHL, but at, at Iverwind Stadium. And then even last year. But it, I don't think that many people are paying attention anymore. And I'll tell you why. Because I think that the NHL has absolutely strangled the life out of this thing. They've now played 36 outdoor games at my last count which has taken something that was special and unique and wonderful and made it commonplace and boring. And let me bring in Steve Foxcroft. He's a commentator. He's an official. He's a, well, he's all kinds of things. I mean, I could add more adjectives, but I'll, you know, I'll leave it there. Uh, Steve, how are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. I appreciate you not adding too many more adjectives. (laughs) So do you share the view that this was once upon a time, an amazing spectacle that has absolutely been turned into something repetitive and boring? I do share that view. And it made me think back to, I went to the second one, as you described, the the one in Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Buffalo. And I remember it to this day. And you made me think back to how exciting, Excited I was when it was announced, when the tickets became available, when I got my tickets, and so on. Um, the the thing about it live, like it was fantastic. It was almost, and you 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 described it. It was that snow globe kind of atmosphere. It was almost just a touch too much snow that day. Like it it affected the game. I think they stopped it a few times to shovel and so on. And and but the It was great. It was fantastic. 70,000 people in an arena and so on. And I went to one other one, and to show you how the luster is worn off, I can't even remember who played. Like, I know it was Toronto. It was at BMO Field. 
can't even tell you who they played, though. Uh, BMO, yeah, I can't remember See? either. That's how. So that kind of proves the point that I was actually there, and I don't know who they played. I heard it, was, it, yeah, and there was a quote, and I'm trying to find it right now because as you're talking about this, I I, I think it was Patrice Bergeron who plays for the Boston Bruins. And I, I think it was him, and he was being asked about this, you know, this outdoor game that was played at Fenway Park, and it was either him or someone else, and he goes, this is my sixth outdoor game, and I still find it special. It's like, wait a second. The whole point here was that guys would maybe, maybe once in their career have a chance to play in one of these things. When it becomes an almost yearly thing, well, it is yearly. I mean, yearly for individual players. It's just, I don't know. I, I like The NHL did something back in whatever year it was when this started, 2003 maybe. They stumbled on something that was so magnificent that you looked and you went, okay, like I love seeing that once. But anytime... Steve, I don't care if your favorite food is ice cream, chocolate ice cream. If you eat chocolate ice cream every single day, eventually it stops tasting so good. You have to switch to Rocky Road at some point, right? That's what you're saying. But, you know, the thing, too, is where they lost me a little bit. And I don't know if part of the allure, like you mentioned the one in Edmonton, part of the allure was the, and I said about the snow, they had to shovel it and all that, was the players enduring the cold and because it was sort of to take you back to the pond hockey days and yep. the guys where they wore the football player style black under their eyes right to so the so the sun wouldn't reflect off the ice and all that but where they really really lost me is when they started having them in facilities and geography that you couldn't really have ice before outdoors. Well, just but wait. They made it so they could. Just wait until February 18 when we get another one of these, only this one's going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina. Outdoors. Yeah, um, you lost me. It, you know, like, because really, how do, you, how do you fake it to make it like outdoor ice and everything like that in Raleigh? And, and, haven't they had enough of it too? Like well, by watching it on TV. But also for the fans. Okay, I get again that you know a lot of this is the players. Oh, it's like a throwback to playing on the pond. Well, first of all, there's about four guys who are old enough in the NHL to have ever played on a pond. Most of these guys have only ever gone to rinks with skating, you know, GTHL and all this money and everything else. So most of them have no idea. There's not like a throwback. But if you live in Carolina. I am reasonably certain that unless you're a transplant, you didn't grow up with this, you know, sort of poetic vision of playing pond hockey in Raleigh-Durham. And if you are transplanted, your team isn't necessarily the Hurricanes. Like, you would be rooting for the visitors almost, you know? like. Uh- what was the Dude. name? I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, the name, the, the Hamilton guy who bought the L.A. Kings once upon a time um, owned the Lakers as well. Uh, Not Jerry Buss. Um, before him. Anyway, yeah, before him. I'll think I of it forget. in a second. Again, I'm, yeah. uh, I remember his quote. Everyone's heard this quote before, but he, he said, you know, he bought the team in L.A. because he thought, uh, you know, there's all these Canadians living in L.A., so it would be a surefire thing. And he goes, I, I realize that there's 300,000 people living in L- Canadians living in L.A. because they hate hockey. They were trying to get away. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's so true, right? You know, like, so I don't know. Anyway, I just, that that was, uh, yes, I, I, I have now found this to be, it, it's overkill. It was so great. It was so great. And now I didn't even realize it was on until it was on. And I'm flipping yeah. channels like, oh, there's an outdoor game. And I was like, oh, okay. 
Uh, all right, let me flip, switch topic here. We got a minute or two left. Um, you're a guy who is uh, very closely affiliated. You, you do the the sticks for the yard markers at the Buffalo Bills games. You see the games up close, and you know this team very well. You know what happened this week. So now that it sounds like things are improving, that um, that the player is doing much much better by the sounds of it, is talking it seems, or at least communicating. We can go to the other part, which is what in the world if you're the NFL. Do you do with the schedules and the standings and figuring this thing out for the? Because all there's three teams, including the Bills, who all have a claim potentially to being the tops team in their conference, to having a bye in the first week and having home field advantage throughout the playoffs. What do you do? And that's the thing. And first of all, yeah, our prayers to Demar, right? Because let's let's just get that out of the way too. Because I think like you. And and most of us, we were numb by what happened the other day for for a day or two. So today's news is great, but for the NFL, it becomes a bit of an issue, I think, because all the hype was this was the game of the year, and most of it is because what was at stake? Because they've been talking all this time about being the number one team. You get two things: you get the buy, and you get home field. So then to just dismiss the game entirely. It kind of wipes away all your talk and grandeur about how important that is. Because to me, if it's still important and all the pregame hype to it and all that, and then to just sort of say, oh, we aren't even going to play this game at all. So it's not even going to affect our season in terms of standings and so well, on. Well, it's going to affect, yeah, no, it'll affect the season. And I get not playing it, but I, it's just I, I look at the options here. And, you know, so if you say, okay, we're not going to play this game, and that means that if Kansas City beats the Vegas Raiders this weekend, which they will because Vegas is out, uh, that Kansas City will have more wins than anyone else, so they should have home field. Well, they only have more wins because Buffalo and Cincinnati didn't play, and both Buffalo and Cincinnati beat Kansas City this year, so it would be really... If Kansas City somehow sneaks in the back door and gets all the bonuses when they've lost to both these teams... And and part of it, I guess, is um, right now Buffalo fans and Cincinnati fans kind of have a mutual respect for one another, but both of them don't like, don't care for Kansas City. So I just think it's handy. It's the NFL trying to hand Kansas. Well, City if they do, if they do, if they give yeah. them that one, and I'll tell you what though. Um, the NFL, I don't think they would be doing it for this reason, and there's all kinds of problems with whatever. If the NFL goes the route of saying, well, listen, Buffalo and Cincinnati didn't play, Kansas City did, they've got the best record, they get all the stuff, they get all the presents, Kansas City instantly, overnight, becomes the Darth Vader number one villain in the NFL. Everybody outside of the city limits of Kansas City hates them suddenly and wants them out more than any other team. And they have two figures that are kind of likable. Well, three, really, Travis Kelsey, Mahomes, and the coach, Andy Reid. But, yeah, they become villains. I had the two quick, quickly, I'll give you my two scenarios, some of which, of course, they've talked about. My idea was having the NFC playoffs go normal, Bills, Bengals play next week, and then the AFC does their playoffs a week behind. So the Super Bowl has the AFC champ with one week off in between the NFC with two. I think that's very, very doable. The one that they're talking about, what I'm hearing about out of NFL headquarters today is if all three of them win this weekend, so that's paramount, right? You have to have that. Then Kansas City would get to choose one of the one of two breaks that a number one seed gets. They either get a bye 
or the home field. And then the second-place team, which would be Buffalo if all three win, gets whatever they don't choose. So Buffalo would kind of end up with probably home field advantage. So, And yet somehow still, because Kansas City would, oh, we got to run here. Kansas City would mm-hmm. almost certainly take home field, which would mean that I think now that means that out of the eight times that in Josh Allen's career that he's played against Kansas City, seven of them would have been in Kansas City. And the only time in Buffalo would have been during COVID when there was nobody in the stands. Nobody there. Yeah. Exactly. Like Patrick Mahomes, and I don't mind saying this. I mean, everyone raves about Patrick Mahomes. No player is more overrated than that guy. And I and I mean that because honestly, the team around him, he gets. He's a good player. I'm not saying he's not a good player, but he has never had to do the hard. He's never had to go on the road. He's never had to do all that stuff. Make Patrick. I want to see the NFL come up with some sort of thing that makes the Chiefs go on the road, and then see if that guy can play a game on the road and win. Agreed. Do the heavy lifting to get there, you know. And of course, the Bills, the team, and the city. And I know you got to go. Could they go through any more this past year? I know. I know. But I've got right now to me. Patrick Mahomes has big asterisk behind the number two. Patrick Mahomes, the second asterisk. His career has an asterisk because he's never had to do the hard stuff. I mean, he's, he's, right. he's always had a great team. He's mm-hmm. always had a great coach. And he's always had a, seemingly always had a favorable schedule. Couldn't agree more. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. Always good to catch up. Talk soon. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get into a story that I think is very strange, quite honestly, and I, um, from everything I've read or understood about this, I, I don't quite understand. We're going to hopefully try and figure some things out over the next few minutes here on the show, but there is a gentleman who came to Canada in 2014, um, arrived here from Kenya, and uh, we'll get into what the reasons were why he came here. But from all accounts, has become a very productive, very beloved member of our community, uh, particularly within the Kenyan community around here, but not just that. And yet, as I'm reading, um, it it appears that for reasons that we don't know, and, and the Canadian Border Services Agency doesn't comment on specific cases, so we won't probably really know, he is now facing deportation to go back to Kenya. His name is John Mulwa. He joins me this evening. John, how are you today? Hi, hi, hi. How are you? I am terrific. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm good. I'm blessed. Well, it's. I mean, you've got a, you've got a pretty upbeat, positive attitude considering what's going on right now. <laughs> I'm a very positive person. Um, I always believe in God's will, and uh, I always say, if it's God's will, let it be done. So I don't have any reason to be unhappy. You know, at least I'm alive today. You know. Well, okay, so let's go back, because I want to go through this story, and, and some people are familiar with it, not everybody is, but let's go back here. You, you came to Canada in 2014. Why did, oh, you, yes, le- why yes. did you leave Kenya? Um, I will not be disclosing so much, but uh, there was a lot of unsafety. Um, I used to work, I used to be a chef. I've been a chef since, uh, I was, uh, since 2004. Um, I worked with the church organizations in Kenya, and then um, I I moved to um, to Dubai, Middle East. I was working with Emirates Flight Catering as one of the cooks. Then um, uh, I used to go back and forth, go back home. Uh, 
I got a job in the U.S. with celebrity cruise ships as one of the chefs there. And uh, my contract was like eight months. I would go home every eight months. So that is now where all these clashes started. I will uh, give you a hint. It's uh, something to do with land clashes back home. Okay, but there were... I know you don't want to get into all the details, but there were members of your family who were killed, correct? Yes. Okay. And members you worried that family and members of my tribe, like it was a tribal clash, like uh, people, the people who speak similar language in Kenya, we have over 50, 50 languages. I mean, 50 different tribes. And, uh, it was something to do with tribal clashes. Okay. And you were concerned for your safety as well. You were concerned that perhaps you could get caught up in that and your life could be at risk. Yes, yes, I was almost like uh, I was in. I was almost uh, dead. Like I, I was caught in a situation where I was confronted. I was attacked, but luckily um, I escaped. I moved from one city to another, and uh, thank God I had. Uh, I was supposed to move to, to go back to work, so I just took advantage of that. I was supposed to go back to the U.S. through Canada. Through uh, I came to Canada through. Uh, Vancouver. I was supposed to join uh, my work. I was working with uh, celebrity cruise ships. Um, so when I got to Canada, I was already so traumatized, depressed. I was in pain. I was harm. I was hurt. So I could not imagine going back to the same situation where I had invested. I had left my my families. I didn't even know where they were. The place that I had built my home. There was no more home. Everything was burnt into ashes. Everything was destroyed. Even the police stations around there, they were all destroyed because of these clashes. It was so painful and traumatizing. So I knew if I go back to work um, with celebrity cruises after eight months, I would definitely go back home because that's what we Mm. used to do. So I decided to seek refuge in Canada. And that's how I got stuck here. Okay, and so when you arrived in Canada, because you're here as a refugee right now, um, and, and this this question may sound like I'm accusing, I'm not, but when you came here, one of the things that often will lead to someone being sent home, did you tell the truth on your application? Was was what you wrote down and what you told them the truth? Exactly, yeah. That's what I told them. Same story I'm telling right now. Okay, so you, you get, they allow you in as a refugee. Now, what has happened? Because it's it's been eight years. Has this been an ongoing process of fighting yes. to stay here? Yes. So I came through, um, I came through Vancouver and uh, I was checking online just to know where I can find uh, community people, African, Kenyan community. Um, and I saw most of those people are in, around uh, Toronto. I mean, yeah, Ontario, because I was in BC. So I took like a flight from there. The same day I, I landed in Vancouver, I took a flight to Toronto. And I was um, at the airport, I could see so many people. So I was, I was, I, I still felt like I was being followed. So I spent a night outside the airport and just, uh, I asked someone at the airport, uh, just a random person, and he told me, he told me he was going to, uh, he was going to, I mean, I could go to Hamilton, you know, some people from East Africa in Hamilton who can help me. Like he, he sent me to a shelter. So I basically came from Toronto to a shelter here in Hamilton. 
and uh, the shelter advised me to seek to look for a lawyer. They helped me get a lawyer, and then uh, withdrew my lawyer. I went and I we I submitted my application as a someone who needed uh, protection. So. In the meantime, so while you've been going through this, you have been involved. Uh, you're a chef, as you say. You've done work with the with the Kenyan community here. You've helped other people. You, you've become a member of this city and of this community. Uh, yes. So what I did because I wanted to heal. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm one person who likes. I'm a very happy person and. Uh, if I'm not happy, you don't want to see me. <laughs> I guess if I get depressed, I really get depressed. I get sick, I get ulcers. Like I, so I did not want to go through all that. So what I decided, I decided to look for community, and I was going around. I was looking for churches. I was looking for places. I was involved. So I started uh, through other friends or whom I met in Hamilton. We started to do family barbecue, just the way you like. Uh, you find two or three people. And you will go somewhere and just do a barbecue. And then from there, I was like, you know what? God bless me with cooking. Why don't I just be cooking for these people? And then I would just cook from my... I I, I moved from the shelter to the apartment, apartment. So I would just cook and I would go to to those people, like the, people, the few people I knew, the Kenyans here in Hamilton. I would just give them food that I cook. And through that, one of the Kenyans, they found me a job with the... A supermarket here in Hamilton. It is a very, um, um, it's a halal store. It's called Samir Supermarket. They gave me a job, and it's, the owner is a very good, friendly guy. It's in Stony Creek. I worked with them, and then from there, I met other people because now I became I became a member of the community Hamilton community. Um, East African community in Hamilton, and they introduced me to other communities, and I mean Kenyan Kenyan people around Ontario. And within, let's say, within five six months, I I knew so many people, and I started being involved in so much. So within one year, I knew at least two three thousand people from Kenya, from Tanzania, from from all over Africa, and I started doing being involved in. Um, in events, if whenever they are doing any event, I would go, I would volunteer. If they need a chef, just someone to do the barbecue, I would do that. And um, I remember we started our main Hamilton barbecue in uh, 2015. It was a very big event. It was attended by at least 1,000 people. And I was one of the people who uh, helped sponsor that. I spoke with the owner of Sami Supermarket. They gave us a deal on meats, and they gave, they also donated some stuff. And through that, I st- now other communities were asking me, oh, John, uh, that event was good. You want us to do again one more? And it became like um, I started doing that. I would go from this place to this place. I remember at some point I even went to Ottawa to help with the, with the same. Okay, um, and and so John, as as we're and again, there are many people. I've been reading stories in the Spectator and other places, and there are many people who talk about all the things you've done while you've been here. So there, there are people vouching for you for sure. Yeah. While you've been here, have you got into any kind of trouble? No, never. I have never been in any trouble. I have never stopped working. I've always been busy working. You've never so, been. You've not been on social assistance. You've been contributing no, rather than no, taking. Maybe when I was new, the first two okay, three months. Okay, okay, okay. 
But okay, that's understandable. But I'm saying later on that you've been a contributor to our to the country. You've been a contributor here. Yes. Yes. So what? What? Been. What then? Is the reason the 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 people at the border who are telling you now that by the end of this month you have to go back to Kenya? What are the why are they telling you that you have to go back? I, I it seems as though you would be exactly the kind of person we would want here. So every every country has got its own system, and the system here in Canada, um, immigration system has its own ways. So what happens? You have to you have to, when I became when I came here as a refugee, someone seeking for refuge, you have to prove. Like for sure, for sure, you are threatened in your you you are you you are threatened in your country. You cannot go back. I did that. I did. I tried all my best. I did. I have dealt with many different lawyers. The only challenge there are some there are some things you cannot prove 100 percent because you cannot be told to go back again to the same people who are threatening you and ask them to write a letter to prove <laughs> that you are being threatened. That's, that's, that's ridiculous, of course. Yeah. Like, you cannot be told to go back to the country where you are being threatened to take some information that they need here. It's, uh, it's kind of a challenge, to be honest. And that is where I feel like there are some, some evidence I could not provide that I am, of course, being threatened. Uh, and... I was left in the middle of a situation whereby, yes, I'm being threatened. My family is at risk. But then I'm here trying to do all my best. Just at least I can better my life and the life of my family. At least because Canada is a good country and there are so many people here. Oh my, I met so many people. And I, I belonged. I felt like this is home and I should be reuni- reuniting with my people. Mm. So I, I wanted to do the best. To that I can, I expect other people to do because what I went through back home, it was very traumatizing, and I could not imagine someone else going through. Then I came here and I saw Canadians with a very heart, a big heart, a open heart. I would volunteer in a, like um, right now. I'm currently, I volunteer in my local church. We started um, in Philpot Church. We started cooking food uh, sometimes two years ago. We were cooking just food. Uh, it was COVID time, and we would go in the streets and just give people food. And I introduced my African food, right? And bear in mind that none of the people in that church is African. I introduced my African uh, delicacies, and people were loving it. Now we started bringing people in the church. If you go to Philpot Church right now, there are over 200 people who come here every Thursday just to eat. And I'm there volunteering, like just giving them water, because that is water it is in me. It is my nature. Do you? It's do not you? Because I'm, 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 I, I stopped because I'm being. No, I'm not going to stop. Do you believe that if you are sent back, and and they have told you you have to leave by the end of the month now, right? Yes, they do. Okay. I, actually, I bought a ticket oh. because I don't want to break any law. I'm doing what the law says. They said, okay, John, you know what? Um, I went to report on the club, and. Um, they told me, um, we know you came here, you tried all your best, you did uh, appeal, you did your case, it was neglected, you did appeal, it was, uh, it, it didn't go through, you did three times appeal until I did judicial review. It didn't go through. So now what is remaining is either humanitarian, which I do not, I did not qualify then, because funny, for you to qualify humanitarian, you have to wait one year after your decision was made. Or maybe you have to have kids here in Canada. Or maybe 
you have to be uh, very sick. Like you have to be in mm. a situation whereby you can't even travel. And I, 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 they asked me, okay, John, are you sick? I, I am sick here, but it's not something that can make me not, you know. So are you at risk? Do you believe we got to run? But do you believe that you are at risk when you go back there? Is your life at risk? Yes, of course, a big risk. Already, you know, my story went so viral. It was in the news here in Canada. And for some reason, it was in the Kenyan news too. And through that, my new, my, my everyone, even the people who were threatening me, now they already know. I saw on Facebook people are making comments. They're like, yeah, you are coming back. <laughs> We're waiting for you. We know. We, we Like, you know, those people, and now I'm being, I'm, I'm being stressed again because I know mm. where I I'm definitely, almost probably, I'm going to die. And you know what? I would say that's what the government wants, then I, I cannot be arguing. I cannot break the law. I will do what they want. But yes, I'm at big risk going back. John Mulwa, uh, you can read uh, M-U-L-W-A. If you want to look up his name online, there are lots of stories if you want more on this. Um, John, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for this. Thank you so much. Uh, you can tell people whoever wants to know my story, they can follow me. They can go. Uh, there is a petition, which uh, someone put a petition. It's a John Molo deportation. You can find it, and maybe your signature will help. Really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today. Good luck. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That is uh, that is John Molo. It is... Uh, Look, I, I don't know. Obviously, I, I've not been in the hearings. I've not been at the Canadian Border Services Agency hearings. I don't know what the evidence is or isn't. We're, we, we just talked to John. You, you heard him explaining what's going on there. But here's the thing I don't understand about this. And, and you know, if there's something else that, that we don't know about that's egregious that John didn't talk about, well, that may be one thing. But we've heard nothing to this point. There's no suggestion of that. And this is the part I don't understand about this story. And and, and I, I, I don't know John. I, I don't believe I don't believe we've ever met. I don't I don't have a, 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 a an iron in this fire as it were. But what I don't get is this. We have been hearing for the last number of months that the government of Canada has decided it is wanting to push to have more people come to this country. We are upping the number of immigrants that are coming to this country to 500,000 a year, half a million people a year we are trying to bring to this country. That's a that's a, an intentional thing to try and help our economy, help our country grow, do all these kind of things. We are looking for half a million people. There is very little chance that our border people will be able to do a full, comprehensive, absolute vetting of every one of those 500 people. It's, it's impossible. You can't, we don't have that many people to do a full, there's 365 days a year. You do the math on how many people that means that each border person or each Canadian Border Service Agency person would have to vet in the span of a day. There is no chance that we can be doing this in a way that absolutely guarantees that every single person coming to this country is either going to be safe. And I'm not suggesting, I'm not saying immigrants are dangerous. I don't mean that. But there are, you still want to be sure we know who's coming into our country. 
This goes back for years. Let's go back to 9-11. We want to know who's coming into our country. So we're asking 500,000 people. We're inviting 500,000 people from around the world to come here. And we're sending John Mulwa home to Kenya. I, I don't know the reason. Maybe Canadian Border Services Agency has a compelling reason, although it's never been shared. Everybody vouches for this guy. Everyone you talk to, everyone who's been quoted in stories vouches for him as a terrific member of the community, as a guy who has donated time, has got involved, has done all these kind of things. So we're, we're asking all these other people to come here that we can't really vouch for, not really. We're taking a person who is here and sending him away, even though we've had eight years, almost nine years to see how he would handle himself, how he would get involved, what he would do in this country. And we've seen from every account that I can find, nothing but glowing tributes to this person. This doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, does it? If there is... If there's some egregious thing in the background we don't know about, that should probably be mentioned then. Someone should probably say, you know, we there have been other people in this country that the border people have said, no, they have to go. And they usually say something or there's a hint or we have some idea why that they've lied to get in here or whatever else, or they've got a terrible background. There seems to be none of that here. I, I simply, I, I don't quite understand why this person who by, as I say, by every account has contributed, is contributing, has blended in, has become important to people here, why he's going back and yet the doors are open for 500,000 other people. Why not open the doors to 499,999 other people and say he can stay? And as I say, if there's something that is egregious, that is being kept hidden, well, someone should say something then. Because sending someone away who seems to every single person that he comes across, apparently, that is a really good guy, that is a decent person, that is a helpful person, that doesn't go on social assistance but contributes to our, who has a job, who helps and volunteer. If there is some reason why that person isn't staying here, we should know that because that seems like exactly the kind of person we want in this country, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I don't understand, but maybe it's not for us to understand. This is, it's a puzzler. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.